0: Stop here with them.
1: <laughs> what
2: did you say? This is David Barsamian, producer and host of Alternative Radio. You're listening to CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary.
0: It's time to rise up. It's time to reconstruct. It's time to call for a moral revival that puts an America together that works for us all. It's time. It's time to help somebody. It's time to show some beauty to a world uproar. It's time. This is why we're living. It's time to register. It's time to mobilize. It's time to educate. It's time. We are living in time for this time. time. It's time. It's time
2: time that's reverend william barber and this is alternative radio i'm david Barsamyan. this edition of ar features reverend william barber and dr martin luther king jr on it's time to transform america representative john lewis of georgia an icon of the struggle for civil rights, social justice, and equality, died in mid-July. He was called the conscience of the Congress. His passing evoked memories of the March on Washington and the Bridge in Selma. And attention to the struggles today, the new Jim Crow, the Black Lives Matter movement, and the widespread demonstrations protesting the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. In the tradition of his mentor, Dr. King, John Lewis was dedicated to civil disobedience and nonviolence. His words inspire us to engagement and peaceful resistance. When he gave the commencement address to Boston University graduates in 2018, he said,
1: My philosophy is very simple. When you see something
0: that is not right, not fair, not just, you have a moral obligation to say something, to do something. Stand up. Speak up. Speak out.
2: This edition of AR features Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Reverend William Barber. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Nobel Peace Prize winner, needs no introduction. Reverend William Barber co-chairs the Poor People's Campaign and is president of Repairers of the Breach We begin with Dr. King speaking at Stanford University in California on April 14th 1967
1: There are literally two Americas. one America is overflowing with the milk of prosperity and the honey of opportunity. But tragically and unfortunately, there is another America. This other America has a daily ugliness about it that constantly transforms the buoyancy of hope into the fatigue of despair. In this America, people are poor by the millions, and they find themselves perishing on a lonely island of poverty, in the midst of a vast ocean of material prosperity. In a sense, the greatest tragedy of this other America is what it does to little children. Little children in this other America are forced to grow up with clouds of inferiority forming every day in their little mental skies. And as we look at this other America, we see it as an arena of blasted hopes and shattered dreams. Many people of various backgrounds live in this other America. uh, America. Some are Mexican-Americans, some are Puerto Ricans, some are Indians, millions of them are Appalachian whites. Probably the largest group in this other America in proportion to its size and the population is the American Negro. To deal with this problem of the two Americas, We are seeking to make America one nation, indivisible with liberty and justice for all. Now let me say that the struggle for civil rights and the struggle to make these two Americas one America is much more difficult today than it was five or ten years ago. For about a decade or maybe 12 years. We struggled all across the South to get rid of legal, overt segregation and all of the humiliation that surrounded that system of segregation. In a sense, this was a struggle for decency. We could not go to a lunch counter in so many instances and get a hamburger or a cup of coffee. We could not make use of public accommodations. We did not have the right to vote in so many areas of the South. And the struggle was to deal with these problems. By the thousands, we protested these conditions by the thousand students and adults decided to sit in at segregated lunch counters to protest conditions there and when they were sitting at those lunch counters they were in reality standing up for the best in the american dream many things were gained as a result of these years of struggle in 1964 the civil rights bill came into being after the Birmingham movement, which did a great deal to subpoena the conscience of a large segment of the nation to appear before the judgment seat of morality on the whole question of civil rights. After the Selma movement in 1965, we were able to get a voting rights bill. Now, All of these things represented strides. But we must see that the struggle today is much more difficult. It's more difficult today because we are struggling now for genuine equality. And it's much easier to integrate a lunch counter than it is to guarantee a livable income and a good, solid job. It's much easier to guarantee the right to vote than it is to guarantee the right to live in sanitary, decent housing conditions. It is much easier to integrate a public park than it is to make genuine quality, integrated education a reality. And I'm convinced that many of the very people who supported us in the struggle in the South are not willing to go all the way now. I came to see this in a very difficult and painful way in Chicago over the last year where I've lived and worked. Some of the people who came quickly to march with us in Selma and Birmingham were active around Chicago. And I came to see that so many people who supported morally and even financially what we were doing in Birmingham and Selma were really outraged against the extremist behavior of Bull Connor and Jim Clark toward Negroes, rather than believing in genuine equality for Negroes. And I think this is what we've got to see now, and this is what makes the struggle much more difficult. And so as a result of all of this, we see many problems existing today that are growing more difficult. It's something that is often overlooked, but Negroes generally live in worse slums today than 20 or 25 years ago. In the North, schools are more segregated today than they were in 1954 when the supreme court's decision on desegregation was rendered economically the negro is worth worse off today than he was 15 and 20 years ago and as we look at these problems we see them growing and developing every day Now, the other thing that we've got to come to see now that many of us didn't see too well during the last 10 years, that is that racism is still alive in American society and much more widespread than we realize. And we must see racism for what it is. It is a myth of the superior and the inferior race. It is the false and tragic notion that one particular group, one particular race is responsible for all of the progress, all of the insights and the total flow of history. And the theory that another group or another race is totally depraved, innately impure and innately inferior, if one says that I am not good enough to live next door to him, if one says that I am not good enough to eat at a lunch counter, or to have a good decent job, or to go to school with him merely because of my race, he is saying consciously or unconsciously that I do not deserve to exist, that however unpleasant it is, we must honestly see and admit. Racism is still deeply rooted all over America. It's still deeply rooted in the North, and it's still deeply rooted in the South. What it is necessary to see is that there has never been a single solid monistic determined commitment on the part of the vast majority of white Americans the whole question of civil rights and on the whole question of racial equality. This is something that truth impels all men of goodwill to admit. What I'm trying to get across is that our nation has constantly taken a positive step forward on the question of racial justice and racial equality. But over and over again, at the same time, made certain backward steps. And this has been the persistence of the so-called white backlash. In 1863, the Negro was freed from the bondage of physical slavery. But at the same time, the nation refused to give him land to make that freedom meaningful. And at that same period, America was giving millions of acres of land in the West and the Midwest, which meant that America was willing to undergird its white peasants from Europe with an economic floor that would make it possible to grow and develop, and refused to give that economic floor to its black peasants, so to speak. this is why Frederick Douglass could say, that emancipation for the Negro was freedom to hunger, freedom without roost to cover their heads. He went on to say that it was freedom without bread to eat, freedom without land to cultivate. It was freedom and famine at the same time. But it does not stop there. In 1875, the nation passed a civil rights bill refused to enforce it. In 1964, the nation passed a weaker civil rights bill. And even to this day, that bill has not been totally enforced in all of its dimensions. The nation heralded a new day of concern for the poor, for the poverty-stricken, for the disadvantaged, and brought into being a poverty bill. But at the same time, it put such little money into the program that it was hardly and still remains hardly a good skirmish against poverty. So these conditions, the persistence of widespread poverty, of slums and of tragic conditions in schools and other areas of life, all of these things have brought about a great deal of despair and a great deal of desperation great deal of disappointment and even bitterness in the negro communities today all of our cities confront huge problems all of our cities are potentially powder kegs as a result of the continued existence of these conditions many in moments of anger many in moments of deep bitterness engage in riots. And Let me say, as I've always said, and I will always continue to say, that riots are socially destructive and self-defeating. I'm still convinced that nonviolence is the most potent weapon available to oppress people in their struggle for freedom and justice. I feel that violence will only create more social problems than they will solve but at the same time it is as necessary for me to be as vigorous in condemning the conditions which cause persons to feel that they must engage in riotous activities as it is for me to condemn riots i think america must see but riots do not develop out of thin air. Certain conditions continue to exist in our society, which must be condemned as vigorously as we condemn riots. But in the final analysis, a riot is the language of the unheard. And what is it that America has failed to hear? It has failed to hear that the plight of the Negro poor has worsened over the last few years, It has failed to hear that the promises of freedom and justice have not been met. And it has failed to hear that large segments of white society are more concerned about tranquility and the status quo than about justice, equality, and humanity. And so in a real sense, our nation's summers of riots are caused by our nation's winters of delay. And as long as America postpones justice, we stand in the position of having these recurrences of violence and riots over and over again. Social justice and progress are the absolute guarantors of riot prevention. Now let me go on to say that if we are to deal with all of the problems that I've talked about, we must develop massive action programs all over the United States of America. Now, in order to develop these massive action programs, we've got to get rid of one or two false notions that continue to exist in our society. One is the notion that only time can solve the problem of racial injustice. I'm sure you've heard this idea it is the notion almost that there is something in the, vera, the very flow of time that will miraculously cure all evils. And I've heard this over and over again, there are those and they often sincere people who say to Negroes and their allies in the white community that we should slow up and just be nice and patient and continue to pray and in 100 two, or 200 years the problem will work itself out. Because only time can solve the problem. Well, I think that is an answer to that myth. And it is that time is neutral. It can be used either constructively or destructively. And I'm absolutely convinced that the forces of ill will in our nation, the extreme rightists in our nation, have often used time much more effectively than the forces of goodwill. And it may well be that we will have to repent in this generation, not merely for the vitriolic words of the bad people and the violent actions of the bad people, but for the appalling silence and indifference of the good people who sit around and say, wait on time. Somewhere we must come to see that social progress never rolls in on the wheels of inevitability. It comes through the tireless efforts and the persistent work of dedicated individuals, and without this hard work, time itself becomes an ally of the primitive forces of social stagnation. And so we must help time, and we must realize that the time is always right to do right. Now that's another notion that gets out. It's around everywhere, and it's a notion that legislation can't solve the problem, it can't do anything in this area. And those who project this argument contend that you've got to change the heart and that you can't change the heart through legislation. Even though it may be true that the law cannot change the heart, it can restrain the hardness. Even though it may be true that the law cannot make a man love me, it can restrain him from lynching me, and I think that's pretty important also. And so while the law may not change the hearts of men, it can and it does change the habits of men. And when you begin to change the habits of men, pretty soon the attitudes will be changed, pretty soon the hearts will be changed. I'm convinced that we still need strong, civil rights legislation. And there's a bill before Congress right now declaring discrimination in housing unconstitutional. And also a bill to make the administration of justice real all over our country. Now, nobody can doubt the need for this. Nobody can doubt the need if he thinks about the fact that since 1963, some 50 Negroes and... White civil rights workers have been brutally murdered in the state of Mississippi alone. Not a single person has been convicted for these dastardly crimes. There have been some indictments, but no one has been convicted. The Negro cannot solve the problems by himself. There again, there are those who always say to Negroes, why don't you do something for yourself? Why don't you lift yourselves by your own bootstraps? And we hear this over and over again. Now, certainly, there are many things that we must do for ourselves and that only we can do for ourselves. Certainly, we must develop within a sense of dignity and self-respect that nobody else can give us, a sense of manhood, a sense of personhood, a sense of not being ashamed of our heritage, not being ashamed of our color. It was wrong and tragic that the Negro ever allowed himself to be ashamed of the fact that he was black or ashamed of the fact that his home, ancestral home, was African. There's a great deal that the Negro must do and can do to amass political and economic power within his own community and by using his own resources. And so we must do certain things for ourselves, but this must not negate the fact and cause the nation to overlook the fact that the Negro cannot solve the problem him- himself. The man was on the plane with me some weeks ago, and he came and talked with me, and he said, "Uh, the problem, Dr. King, that I see with what you all are doing is that every time I see you and other Negroes, you are protesting, and you you aren't doing anything for yourselves. He went on to tell me that he was very poor at one time, and he was able to make it by doing something for himself. Why don't you teach your people, he said to lift themselves by their own bootstraps. And then he went on to say other groups uh, face disadvantages, the Irish, the Italians, and he went down the line. And I said to him that it does not help the Negro, it only deepens his frustration for unfeeling and sensitive people to say to him that other ethnic groups who migrated or were immigrants to this country just a hundred years ago or so, have gotten beyond him, and he came here some 344 years ago. And I went on to remind him that the Negro came to this country involuntarily in chains while others came voluntarily. I went on to remind him that the other problem that we have faced over the years is that the society placed a stigma on the the color of the Negro, on the color of his skin, because he was black. Doors were closed to him that were not closed to other groups. It is a cruel jest to say to a bootless man that he ought to lift himself by his own bootstraps. The fact is that millions of Negroes as a result of centuries of denial and neglect have been left bootless. They find themselves impoverished aliens in this affluent society. And that is a great deal that the society can and must do if the Negro is to gain the economic security that he needs. Now, one of the answers, it seems to me, is a guaranteed uh, annual income, a guaranteed minimum income for all people and for all families of our country and I submit this afternoon that we can end poverty in the United States. Our nation has the resources to do it and I submit that if we can fight an ill-considered war in Vietnam and 20 billion dollars to put a man on the moon, our nation can spend billions of dollars right here on earth. Now let me say finally that we have difficult days ahead, but I haven't despaired. But I want to close by saying this afternoon that I still have faith in the future. And I still believe that these problems can be solved. I realize and understand the discontent and the agony and the disappointment, and even the bitterness of those who feel that whites in America cannot be trusted. And I would be the first to say that there are all too many who are still guided by the racist ethos. But I am still convinced that there are still many white persons of goodwill. And so I refuse to despair I think we are going to achieve our freedom because, however, much America strays away from the ideals of justice. The goal of America is freedom. Abused and scorned though we may be, our destiny is tied up in the destiny of America. Before the Pilgrim Fathers landed at Plymouth, we were here. Before Jefferson etched across the pages of history the majestic words of the Declaration of Independence, we were here. For more than two centuries, our forebears labored here without wages. They made cotton king. They built the homes of their masters in the midst of the most humiliating and oppressive conditions. Yet out of a bottomless vitality, they continued to grow and develop. And I say that if the inexpressible cruelties of slavery couldn't stop us, the opposition that we now face, including the so-called white backlash, will surely fail. And so I can still sing, we shall overcome. We shall overcome because the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. We will be able to hew out of the mounting of despair, a stone of hope, With this faith, we will be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. That will be a great day, that will be a great tomorrow when the morning stars will sing together and the sons of God will shout for joy. Thank you.
2: Was Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. on its time to transform America? This is Independent Alternative Radio. To place a credit card order for CDs of this program, just call us at 1 800 Or you can order online on our website, Alternative radio.org. That's Alternative radio.org. In solidarity with you, our listeners, we are offering printed transcripts, PDFs, or MP3s of this program at no charge. Just call us at one 800 We continue now with Reverend William Barber speaking in Raleigh, North Carolina, on June 20th, 2020.
0: It's time for transformation, reconstruction, and revival in America. Two years ago, we were together on the National Mall and over 25,000 of us from every corner of this nation walked in a solemn procession to the steps of the U.S. Capitol to declare that we were relaunching the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for a mall revival. With our eye on the reconstruction movement of the 19th century and the Poor People's Campaign, in the 20th century. We did not pledge to sit in or camp out on the National Mall but to go home to Alabama and Alaska to California and the Carolinas to Mississippi and to Maine. We went back to build a movement, permanently organized communities of people from every race, creed and culture and sexuality who are ready now to rise up together and shift the moral narrative in this nation. We did not know then all that would transpire in this nation and in this world, but we sang a pledge to one another. Somebody's been hurting our people and it's gone on far too long, and we won't be silent anymore. We committed to do more, mobilizing together, organizing together, registering together, educating together, people for a movement who vote. And to educate this nation together on the long train of abuses which had persuaded us that now is the time for transformative change. Frederick Douglass famously said, power concedes nothing without a demand. It never has and it never will. And that's true, but Brittany Cooper's recent book, Eloquent Rage, adds a crucial point. Power concedes nothing without an organized demand. Today, we have seen the faces of poverty and we've heard the cries of America's poor. We did not know that this mass gathering would happen amidst weeks of a public mourning and cries for racial justice in our streets. We had planned to be on Pennsylvania Avenue right in front of the White House before the pandemic hit, but we know there are plans that are higher than our plans. And there is a timing that supersedes our time. It's kairos. And in the long arc of human history, there are moments when the universe itself groans and declares is time. Now might be the very moment that called you into being. Fearsome and illegitimate power and a malignant river of money are attempting to face down what remains of American democracy. What we have is people power. And that is the force that will prevail. And each of you are an impe- irreplaceable part of gathering and exercising our rights. You have waited long for this moment. The ancestors have waited long for this moment. And in this fateful hour, your time has finally come. When we look back to the text of this nation's founding documents, we find these words. We hold these truths to be self-evident. The Declaration of Independence began trumpeting equality and its promises of life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness for all people. And even though these words were written by a slaveholder and did not match the social contradictions he and others accepted, the spirit of the universe wrote in, wrote in on a repeal clause. Because it goes on to say, to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men deriving their power from the consent of the governed, and that whenever any form of government becomes destructive to these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it and to institute a new government. It's right there in the text. When a long train of abuses demonstrates that a government has become destructive, it is our right and our duty to throw off such government. When we think about all we have heard today in a nation that makes such lofty promises but has accepted such abysmal realities, we must say, after such a long train of abuses, it's time. It's time for radical transformation and reconstruction. It's time to remake the systems of our common life and to make sure they serve everyone. America, at this mass Poor People's Assembly, you have heard dozens of witnesses testify to a long train of abuses. What begun as genocidal violence against native and indigenous people and chattel slavery imposed upon black bodies has continued for 400 years in policies and practices that have served the rich and the powerful while they have kept nearly half of us from having what we need to survive in the richest nation in the history of the world. 140 million Americans are poor and low income, 43% of the nation and will be 50% before this pandemic is over. 700 people die every day from poverty and low wealth, quarter million a year and rising. We know it does not have to be this way. It can be altered. A new and better government can be instituted. We know what policies and public commitments are needed to address poverty, systemic racism, ecological devastation, denial of health care, and the war economy. And we know we have the resources to do it now. Now, this isn't about conservative versus liberal. That's too puny. It's really about life versus death. Yes, on camera, we have witnessed terrible, murderous instances of police violence. But today, through all of these voices, you have seen how socio-political violence has also gripped millions through the interlocking injustices of American inequality. We never see this reality on camera, but it has snuffed the life out of untold thousands whom we hold in our hearts and in our minds and in our spirits. Over a half a century ago, And we don't often talk about this side of Dr. King. Dr. King said, in our society, it is murder to deprive a person of a job or income. Now millions of people are being strangled that way. Millions of people have been crying, I can't breathe far too long. This nation has refused to hear them. And now the COVID crisis has exposed for all to see the fissures and the wounds caused by systemic racism and poverty in this society. So we are here today to say together it's time to choose life, America. It's time for us to do it together. It's time for a moral revolution of values. We can't pretend that the crisis we face is about a single individual in office or one political party alone sure we are clear about what's being exacerbated but even the current occupant of the of the white house benefited from a culture that had been cultivated ever since the death of Dr King and even before we know it's not just what the president doing but what a regressive senate what a regressive congress does far too long our public leadership has been too comfortable with other folks death truth of the matter is Republicans, racialized poverty, and too many Democrats run from poverty. It's time to say every piece of public policy has a death measurement on the down low. We don't talk about that often, but every piece of public policy, regressive, regressive piece of public policy, has a death measurement on the down low. And it's been kept on the down low, but it's time to expose it now. Denying living wages. And basic income has a death measurement. Denying health care has a death measurement. And it's time, it's past time, to reject the culture of death. Even racist voter suppression has a death measurement. Because when racist voter suppression is used to help people get elected, who once they get elected, they block health care, they block living wages, and they protect greedy corporations, then voter suppression is used in a way that produces a death measure. And like the prophet Ezekiel said in scripture, it's not only the politicians who've been acting as ravenous wolves, that's the biblical language, it's also the lying religionists who cover up for them. And it's time to reject and alter the policies of greed, violence, and racism that hurt, harm, and destroy lives. We need an analysis to embrace an agenda rooted in the deepest values of our faith traditions, our highest and best political and intellectual visions, the values closest to the heart within each of us, love, justice, mercy, and truth. It's time to demand that we, the people, live up, to our stated commitment to establish justice, promote the general welfare, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, and guarantee every American equal protection under the law. It's time. In fact, it's past time. But also it's time for a major transformation and reconstruction. Since we've launched this campaign, people have asked what one demand is your top priority. Well, we say when you decided to do COVID response, you gave $2.5 trillion, nearly $3 trillion to the banks and the corporation. If they can have $3 things, don't ask us what is our one thing. We are not asking for one thing. We are demanding that this nation reconstruct everything. We are demanding that for the sake of the people who would choose policies of life, liberation, and love. In this campaign, we know things don't have to be kept the way they are. We know that. We know that if we instituted fair elections and restricted the influence of big money in our politics, we could transition to automatic online voter registration and give life to our democracy by ensuring eligible voters can vote. We don't have to choose death. We can choose life. We need to understand that many of the things we are seeing don't have to be. They are bad choices. People in line now trying to get food, bad choices. People without health care comes from bad choices. People without sick leave and basic and decent unemployment because of bad choices. Money going to the corporations in the middle of the pandemic rather than going to the communities Bad choices. And if we change, the nation can change. If we want to have a hero's bill, yes, make sure there's money in there for city and municipal workers so we can save the jobs of public service workers, but also guarantee health care, but also guarantee living wages, but also guarantee sick leave, but also guarantee rent forgiveness, but also put a moratorium on people's utilities being cut off. We can do this and have life. If we instituted a $15 minimum wage immediately, we would raise pay for 49 million workers by $328 billion per year. 49 million people would come up out of poverty and low wealth. If we implemented a housing wage, we could raise pay for 83 million workers and by, by more than $1 trillion going into the economy. This would give life to our households and our economy. If we end mass incarceration, we could significantly reduce the $179 billion that currently goes to policing and courts and prison. And this would give life to our communities and raise resources to secure housing for all. If we stop pouring money and resources into a border wall, we could move that $24 billion into children's K-12 through education and give life to their dreams. If we canceled one military contract, we would have $25 billion to expand Medicaid in the 14 states that haven't already done so under the Affordable Care Act. This would mean life. For millions of people in those states who are still uninsured in the midst of a pandemic. If we canceled another military contract, we would have more than enough resources to put towards expanding our water infrastructure and creating 945,000 jobs. Instead of putting those resources in war, we would support life because water is life. If we cut $350 billion from the military budget and close some of the 800 bases, we would still have more money than China and North Korea and Iran and Iraq combined. But we could make the world a more safer place and put those resources toward health care and lifting our people. If we had put $6.4 trillion that we've poured into endless wars since 9-11. If we had put that money into green energy, we would have built a renewable energy grid by now with nearly $2 trillion to spare. If we restore the corporate tax rate to what it was before the Trump tax cuts, we would raise $130 billion per year. This would be more than enough resources to fund the $100 billion we need to provide early childhood care and education for every child in this country. They could live. If we instituted a tiny tax on Wall Street trades, we would raise more than the $70 billion we need to invest in free public college for all. If we implemented a wealth tax on the richest households in the country, we would raise $270 billion a year to put toward fixing our public infrastructure. If we tax inherited wealth fairly, we could raise $78 billion a year, and we could use that to close the racial wealth gap by ba- ba- putting in baby bonds programs that would establish a savings account with resources for every American child. If we repented of the injustices against indigenous people and implemented fair policies for undocumented Americans and homeless Americans, we could change our present and our future and have a true healing from our past. Now, I know somebody's out there to say, well, did you get that from the Democrats? Did you get that from the Progressives?" No, got it from the Bible. Jesus said, Jesus said that every nation is going to be judged by how it treats the poor, how it treats the least of these, how it treats the sick and the hungry and in prison. Isaiah 10 said, woe unto those who legislate evil and rob the poor of their rights and make women and children their prey. It's time. The worst mistake we could make now with all of this marching and protesting in the street would be to demand too little. And we have the capacity to change the political conversation in this country. And it's time. 23 million poor and low-income people who were eligible to vote in 2016 didn't vote. Many of them, they tell us because they never hear politicians talking about their issues. About 107,000 votes in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan decided the presidential election. In those three states alone, nearly 2 million poor and low-income people who did not vote in 2016 are eligible to register and vote in 2020. In the South, 8.9 million poor and low-wealth people who could have voted didn't vote. Why don't many of them vote? Because they say they never hear their issues of poverty. If we want to change the electorate, if we want to change the political calculus, we have to start talking to poor and low wealth people. And stop lying on poor and low wealth people, white and black. Most poor and low wealth people did not vote for the current administration. Many of them did not vote because nobody comes and visits them and talks to them and listens to them and hears their stories and says in their policies how they're going to address the issue of poverty. We have the power to change the office holders. And then we have the power to put pressure on them, nonviolent, civil disobedient pressure, if necessary, to push our agenda. We have power for in the streets, in the suites, in the voting booths, in the pulpits. We have power, nonviolent power, and it's time to use it. It's not only time, it's past time. It's our time. And when we come together and vote together and work together, we can change and remake the systems of government to serve all people. And then finally, It's time to move together and to refuse to be divided. Our mantra is somebody's been hurting our people and it's gone on far too long. We won't be silent anymore. It is a cry against the nation's long train of abuses rooted deeply in systemic racism and systemic poverty. When we say forward together, not one step back, it is a call to the kind of unity needed to answer the time we live in. It's the only thing that has ever revived the hope of a democracy. In every moment of potential reconstruction, there has been a moral fusion gathering. When poor white farmers and formerly enslaved voters realized it was time to form a fusion party across the South and to face down domestic terrorist organizations and white supremacy campaigns, they were able, they were able to move together. When multicultural coalitions decided it was time to come together in a labor movement after World War I, the corporate powers attacked them as socialists and used racist fear and political ideology because they were scared of people coming together. But in the 1920s, A. Philip Randolph and his friends and his allies organized a strike against the powerful Pullman Company and the Brotherhood of Sleeping Porters, Car Porters became the backbone of the civil rights in America for generations. In in Flint, Michigan in 1937, the United Auto Workers took over factories and became a force to reckon with and a mighty labor movement was born. If you like the eight-hour day and the weekend, you owe it to labor organizers who came together across racial lines. And when poor white folk decided it was time to join black folks and native nations, Chicano workers, the Poor People's Campaign 50 years ago was founded. And as we face a pandemic, we know America has a long history of dividing people, blaming Chinese or the Mexicans or Spanish or the Indians for disease in the past, scapegoating people by nationality. We know the tricks, but we also know when we decide it's time to unite. Oh, there's power. There's power when we come together. The truth is when you hold on to the truth, justice has never lost. During slavery, it looked like justice had lost, but when Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass and some Quakers and white evangelicals decided it was time to get together, they formed this fusion movement that brought about abolition. Women didn't have the right to vote, but then Sojourner Truth and, and, and others decided it's time. Lucretia Mark, time, time. Mother Jones, it's time. And they won the right to vote. Plessy versus Ferguson looked like it had the victory. But when Thurgood Marshall got white lawyers and black lawyers and said, it's time, it's time to take on Plessy. They did it and they won. It looked like Jim Crow had beaten down injustice, couldn't rise again. But when Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King, Bayard Rustin, who was gay, decided it was time to get with white folk like Glenn Smiley and Jonathan Daniels and Viola Wusso and James Reed, when they got together, they tore Jim Crow down. And so we've come together today to say it's time. It's time, it's time to be real free, not just free, real free. It's and it's time to show some light in dark places. And that means each of us in this moment needs to take some inventory of our own time on this earth. That's it. Let me close here. I don't mean to be morbid, but in this pandemic, we must be honest about the fact that any one of us could be 48 hours from our last breath. I ask you today, if you knew you were going to take your last breath in 48 hours, what would you use your last breath to fight for? What kind of world would you want to breathe life into for the next generation? What would you use your last breaths for if you knew they were just a day or so away? Well, it's time time. to live like our last breath could come any moment. It's time time. to use every breath left in our bodies to fight for love and truth and justice. It's time to believe again. It's time to challenge the lie about not having resources. It's time to believe and work as though we are sure, we are sure that love is still greater than hate. The truth is still greater than lies. It's time to believe and work as though we are sure that the hungry can be fed, that the sick can be insured and cured, that immigrants can be welcomed, that the war machinery can be cut. It's time to believe that black and white and poor and Latino people in the South can be organized into a new powerful coalition for change. It's time. It's time to come together and vote like never before. It's time Time. Whether you're black or brown or First Nation yes. or Asian yes. or, wh- or, 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 or Latino, yes. Whatever, whoever, whoever you are, gay or straight or trans, young or old, from the rural or from the cities, it's time. Yes to believe that this heart and the soul of this democracy can live. Uh, we can breathe into it the spirit of a genuine democracy. It's time, even if it takes nonviolent resistance. It's time with every breath we have while we still have time. It's time to rise up. It's time to reconstruct. It's time to call for a moral revival that puts an America together that works for us all. It's time. It's time as one songwriter said to help somebody it's time to show this world that is traveling wrong this nation that is traveling wrong it's time to show some beauty to a world uproar it's time this is why we're living it's time to register it's time to mobilize it's time to educate it's time we are living in time for this time. time it's time it's time it's time Come on and join the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for a moral revival, and let's do something in time to change time, because the time is right now.
2: That was Reverend William Barber of the Poor People's Campaign. Before that, we heard Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. They spoke on its time to transform America. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are independent and in our 34th year. We're supported solely by individuals just like you. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To place a credit card order for CDs of today's program, It's Time to Transform America. Just call us at 1-800-444-1977. Or you can order online on our website, AlternativeRadio.org. And in solidarity with you, our listeners, we are offering printed transcripts, PDFs, and MP3s of this program at no charge. Just call us at one eight hundred triple four one nine seven seven again that number is one eight hundred triple four one nine seven seven. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor i'm David Barsamyan. Thank you for listening. just go to the website alternativeradio.org alternativeradio.org uh, we too are independent and are supported solely by listeners who make donations uh, purchase transcripts mp3s or cds of our programs so we're very much uh, dependent on listeners out there Spock, do you see that? What is it, Captain? Turn the dial 12 degrees. Do you hear that? Good God, Jim. They've done it. But, sir, it is illogical. It can't be. I don't believe it. Free unlimited music broadcasting locally on CJSW
1: 90.9 FM in Calgary. Home to the people of the Treaty 7 region and
2: Mady Nation of Alberta, region 3.